Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Let me also welcome those uh, viewing us on Cato's live streaming. Uh, I am not Ilya Shapiro. Uh, Ilya was scheduled to moderate today's forum, uh, but young Charles Alexander Shapiro decided to come into the world early, and so Charlie and his father are getting to know each other at home today. Um, I am instead Roger Pilan, the Vice President for Legal Affairs at Cato, and your host for today's forum on Minnesota Voters Alliance v. Manscaped. Uh, next Wednesday, the Supreme Court will hear oral argument in the case, and I should note that the Wall Street Journal will be uh, running um, Ilya's op-ed uh, on the morning of the oral argument. Today, we have a preview of the issues at stake. Uh, they're fundamental First Amendment political speech issues. Uh, it seems that the state of Minnesota thought it fit to prohibit voters when they show up at the polls from wearing any insignia that, in the sole discretion of on-site election judges, might be deemed political. You cannot wear a hat that says, Make America Great Again, or a shirt that says, I'm with her, or Occupy, or Tea Party, or a union button, or a button that says, I like Ike, anything that might convey to your fellow citizens your political views. Indeed, imagine uh, you were an election judge and I walked in uh, to vote wearing this red tie with elephants on it, no less. Uh, aha, a dead giveaway, you say. But look at the elephants, they're in blue. Does that mean I'm signaling that I'm a rhino, a Republican in name only, or simply confused? But look at the elephants. Uh, but suppose I showed up with a blue tie with red donkeys on it. Would that make me a blue dog Democrat or simply even more confused? Well, you get the picture. Uh, I expect the justices are going to have some fun with this case. We certainly did when we put our amicus brief together which we filed jointly with the Rutherford Institute, the Reason Foundation, and the Individual Rights Foundation. Yet the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit ruled for Minnesota, holding that polling locations are a speech-free zone, a non-public forum in constitutional parlance, where the state may broadly prohibit anything as long as it doesn't discriminate as to viewpoint. Here to delve into the details of the case, we have three experts. I'll introduce each before he speaks. Wen Fa is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is representing the petitioner, Minnesota Voters Alliance. Wen has argued a wide range of cases from PLF dealing with private property, equal protection, school choice, economic liberty, and the First Amendment. A graduate of the University of Texas at Dallas, he holds a master's degree in political theory from the London School of Economics and a law degree from the University of Michigan Law School. Please welcome Wen Fo. All right, thank you, Roger. In Minnesota Voters Alliance versus Mansky, the Supreme Court will decide whether the government can prosecute you just for wearing a t-shirt on election day. Before I get into the weeds of our First Amendment argument, I want everyone to take a step back 
and consider how the multi-billion dollar apparel industry caters to our desire to express ourselves every day. For example, you see people wearing t-shirts with their college logo, Michigan, Ohio State, Alabama. And this also happens in the world of professional sports. Uh, a few days ago, I went to dinner near Capital One Arena, and I knew right away there was a hockey game going on because of all the people wearing Washington Capitals jerseys. Sometimes people will wear things to express themselves, even if not everyone else would get the message. A few days ago, one of my colleagues uh, shared a selfie taken by his daughter and her boyfriend on election day 2016. The picture said SMOD 2016, and uh, I actually have the shirt right here to show our members of the audience. So it says SMOD 2016. Now, not everyone here knows what that means, but it turns out that SMOD stands for Sweet Meteor of Death, a made-up and presumably third-party candidate for president who have promised to obliterate all life on Earth. Now that it's 2018, we can look back on SMOD's track record and see that he was just another lying politician. Our client, Andy Selick, president of the Minnesota Voters Alliance, wore a t-shirt with a Tea Party logo and a, Gats and a picture of the Gatson flag when he went to vote in 2010. Twice he was prevented from voting because he was wearing a t-shirt. He was finally allowed to vote on the third try after a poll worker recorded his name and address for potential prosecution. It turns out that Selick violated Minnesota law 211B11, which bans voters from wearing political apparel at the polling place on election day. To define politi political, Minnesota enacted an election day policy. The policy says that voters may not wear any apparel featuring the logo of a group with a recognizable political view, such as, and I quote, the Tea Party, MoveOn.org, and so on. Which other groups have recognizable political views? The other side has conceded at the Court of Appeals that the statute could be used to prosecute a voter just for wearing a Chamber of Commerce shirt or a shirt that says AFL-CIO. The, the government has even said that if there were a stadium finance issue on the ballot, it could prosecute someone who went to vote while wearing a Minnesota Vikings jersey. As one judge who heard this case noted, the plain logic of the statute could, be, could allow the government to prosecute voters just for wearing a t-shirt that features the logo of the NAACP, the NRA, veterans of foreign wars, and countless other groups that, that are usually associated with a political viewpoint. It probably won't surprise you that the Supreme Court will decide whether the law is facially overbroad, whether the number of potentially unconstitutional applications of the statute is greater than the statute's plainly legitimate sweep. And it won't surprise you that many other groups, including the Cato Institute, have filed excellent friend of the court briefs in support of Pacific Legal Foundation's First Amendment case.
But it might surprise you that because the law is so broad that even the ACLU has filed a brief in support of our clients and the First Amendment. As the ACLU notes, Minnesota's law could easily be used to prosecute voters who show up on election day wearing shirts that say Me Too, Black Lives Matter, or even a Colin Kaepernick jersey. I think the law is in trouble because, as one commentator noted, when you have both the Cato Institute and the ACLU against you, uh, you have a tough case. And here's why I think that the court will ultimately issue a pro-First Amendment opinion. First, as the earlier examples show, the Minnesota law outlaws a remarkable amount of protected speech. This isn't just a law that prohibits electioneering. The law we're challenging doesn't prohibit active campaigning, disorderly conduct, or voter intimidation. Minnesota has plenty of other statutes that deal with those things, and we're not challenging any of those laws. This law, however, outlaws much more speech. It prohibits the wearing of certain insignia. In other words, it outlaws the type of passive speech that the Supreme Court has endorsed in the black armband case of Tinker versus Des Moines. Further, although some states prohibit campaign speech that directly endorses one candidate or another, this law goes far beyond that and bans all speech associated with a political viewpoint. Yet the Supreme Court has called political speech the core of what the First Amendment uh, is meant to protect. Second, there's really no good reason for such a broad ban on speech. Any voter in Minnesota can vote without going to the polling place on election day just by f filling out an, election, an absentee ballot. What's more, voters often hear countless political ads, watch talking heads debate the qualification of the candidates, and see signs endorsing one candidate or the other. If they've made up their mind on election day, it's hard to see how they'll be influenced by a Minnesota Vikings jersey or just a shirt that says AFL-CIO. Third, a law that gives individual poll workers this much discretion leads to viewpoint discrimination. A conservative poll worker might, uh, might be more willing to stop a voter wearing an ACLU shirt and a liberal poll worker might be more apt to detain a voter wearing a shirt with a logo of the Heritage Foundation. The open-ended Minnesota statute that we're challenging undermines the rule of law and stifles free speech. Finally, overbroad laws like this one chill the speech of those not before the Supreme Court. The average voter won't know if her name and address will be taken down by poll workers for wearing a shirt carrying the emblem or the logo of her favorite organization. Better safe than sorry. Better leave the shirt at home rather than to risk prosecution. The First Amendment's overbreath doctrine guards against this chilling effect and recognizes that broad laws like Minnesota threaten to suppress speech in subtle ways. What are we doing with this case? In practice, we're vindicating the free speech rights of everyone who has had their speech stifled by a law that's similar to Minnesota's. We're vindicating the free speech rights of the voter uh, who almost lost her right to vote in 2008 
just for wearing an Alaska souvenir shirt with a picture of a moose head and fishing poles just because one poll worker said that the shirt could be misconstrued as support for then-candidate Sarah Palin. We're supporting, we're vindicating the free speech rights of students who were questioned by poll workers for wearing Massachusetts Institute of Technology sweatshirts that said MIT because the poll workers believed that those students were campaigning for then-candidate Mitt Romney. And we're fighting for the free speech rights of Arkansas voters who in the 2016 election were told that they couldn't vote while wearing a t-shirt that said, I miss Bill. In principle, we're fighting for the free speech rights of all Americans. We're fighting for voters in Minnesota who want to wear Tea Party t-shirts. But we're also fighting for uh, small business owners in Tennessee who want to wear Chamber of Commerce t-shirts. We're fighting for union representatives in New York who want to wear AFL-CIO t-shirts. And we're fighting for sportsmen in Texas who want to wear, uh, who want, who want to wear NRA t-shirts, and we're fighting for civil advocates in Vermont who want to wear shirts that say NAACP. We're fighting for the First Amendment rights of everyone, no matter where they live, no matter what their views, because we defend liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Well, thank you. When the uh, fellow was wearing the shirt with the, with the uh, Moose on it probably could have gotten away if he had put under the moose um, Bullwinkle, who um, was a famous graduate of What's the Matter You. Um, now, to uh, here to defend this abomination, um, the state of Minnesota has had the good sense of hiring a first-rate legal pro, a sure sign of legal desperation. <laughs> Uh, Ginger Anders uh, is a partner in the Washington office of Munger, Tolls, and Holson, which uh, represents Joe Mansky, an elections manager in the state of Minnesota. Uh, Ginger joined the firm uh, from the U.S. Department of Justice, where she served as an assistant to the U.S. Solicitor General and a deputy assistant attorney general in the office of legal counsel in the Justice Department. Um, during her nearly eight-year tenure as an assistant to the Solicitor General, uh, she represented the United States before the Supreme Court in a wide range of noteworthy cases. In fact, she has uh, argued 18 cases before the Supreme Court. She is a graduate of Yale. She earned her law degree at Columbia Law School. She then clerked for Judge uh, Gerard Lynch of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. For then-Judge Sonia Sotomayor of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, and for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Supreme Court. Please welcome Ginger Anders. Thank you very much. So the state uh, defends this law on the ground that um, this fits, I think, very well within existing First Amendment doctrine and a doctrine in which the state is given a great deal of discretion to determine uh, what reasonable and viewpoint neutral uh, restrictions it, it places on speech. Um, so the state will, will start with Burson versus Freeman. And that's a case that actually involved um, sidewalks outside the polling places. And what the 
core, I think, established there is that the, what's known as the public forum doctrine applies um, to voting and to polling places. So that doctrine says that you know, things like the sidewalks, public parks, that traditionally everyone is free to speak. Um, and, and so the, the state has to satisfy strict scrutiny um, in order to impose restrictions um, on speech in those public forums. But there's also another category, non-public forums, uh, where the state is much more free uh, to restrict speech. And those tend to be, those are forums that are not traditionally used um, for speech. So they might be you know, public hospitals, uh, courtrooms, uh, you know, military bases, even you know, the sort of space around a military base. Those are all things that have been held not to be um, the public forums. And so there the, the state has much broader leeway. And so in Burson, uh, the court was faced with the Tennessee statute that um, uh, restricted campaign speech, both active and passive campaign speech, so either you know, talking to people or just holding up a sign um, on the sidewalks outside the polling places. So that was clearly a public forum, and so the court applied strict scrutiny. And um, it said, I think sort of notably for this case, that, look, we have... Um, 100 years of these sorts of regulations in and around polling places. The states, you know, have a history in which they decided, you know, in the late 19th century that there was a lot of, um, you know, hullabaloo around polling places. There was a lot of commotion. There were people trying to bribe, um, you know, people to vote in a certain way. All, all these things were going on. They were harmful. They were stopping people from voting. And so the states, I think, all around the same time, um, put in place these restrictions that um, you know, just tried to keep things a little bit calmer. And so uh, the court said, um, you know, the, the state can take advantage of that history. It can invoke that history here. It doesn't have to wait and show that, you know, we had a particular speaker and then we had a particular voter who was intimidated. Uh, we can just rely on sort of the consensus among the states for all this history. Um, I think there are, are uh, Burson's an, an older case, and many of the people who are um, on the court are no longer on the court. But I think there are two things that are um, particularly noteworthy for this case. Uh, the first is that Justice Kennedy concurred. Um, and what he really emphasized was he didn't really want to apply the forum doctrine, but he did think that you had to take into account um, not only the free speech rights of people coming to vote, but also the right on the other side, which is the fundamental right to vote. Um, you know, so you have these two rights that could be in tension, potentially. Um, and he said, you know, that changes the analysis a little bit. We don't, we don't analyze this as a pure free speech case. We look at the right to vote as well. Um, and the other notable thing, I think, was that Justice Scalia concurred in the judgment on the ground that he would have given more leeway uh, to the state to regulate. He thought that because of this long tradition um, of, of states restricting speech in and around the polling places, even the sidewalk outside the polling place was a non-public forum where the state could pretty much impose whatever reasonable restriction it wanted um, as long as it was viewpoint neutral. Uh, so that's where he came down on this. So, Burson involved outside the polling places. This case involves inside the polling places. And so we argue that um, inside the polling place is clearly a non-public forum. This is actually in the room where you're voting. And you know, when you think about what you do there, um, you know, the ballot is secret by tradition. You know, it's the same history of um, protecting the right to vote by restricting what people can do in and around the polling places means that we now have secret ballot restrictions. Um, so what that means is it's not an area that's been thought of as a place where you go to publicly speak. Um, you are doing something different and distinct there. Um, you know, it's a really important civic responsibility, but it is not public speech in the way that we think of what's going on in, in parks or sidewalks uh, or auditoriums. Um, 
So in that sense, it is much more like a courtroom or a hospital um, than it is like a, a public park. And so the non-public forum doctrine applies, which means that the state um, can impose reasonable restrictions, which for our purposes means that the state, um, you know, has a lot more, there's a lot more play in the joints between the state's interests and um, how it has constructed the restriction. So if you think of strict scrutiny as requiring, you know, a really tight fit between the state's interests and, um, you know, the restriction they impose, uh, the reasonableness standard, of course, is much more permissible. Um, so I'll pause there and talk about the construction of the statute a little bit. So I think this is where a lot of the argument on Wednesday is going to focus. Um, uh, so, so the statute itself talks about uh, political attire. The state has advanced a construction of the statute that um, is consistent with how it has applied it over the past hundred years. And that is essentially that um, political attire in this context, in the context of the sort of larger statutory framework, means um, issues, uh, candidates, um, th messages that a reasonable observer would understand to be related to, to express a view on the issues facing the voter at that election. Um, so what that means is, of course, it would include you know, campaign material, right? Um, I'm with her, make America great again. Um, but it, it would also include things that um, are not purely campaign material, but clearly do express a view. Um, so that could be a little bit issue dependent, it could be a little bit context dependent, right? So when you, you think of an election, an election cycle, and you think about how um, by the time you go into the, the voting booth, you sort of know things have coalesced in the election, right? There are, there are issues that it's now very clear one, part, one candidate stands for, another doesn't. Um, you know, those are issues that have become salient in the election. So for instance, if you have an election uh, where you know, one candidate is, say, against the death penalty, and that's become a big issue in you know, ads, that kind of thing, um, you know, then, then certainly someone who goes in wearing a shirt that says, you know, I'm for the death penalty, I'm against the death penalty, uh, a reasonable observer could under understand that as being, um, you know, expressing a view for or against a particular candidate. Um, you know, so that's the kind of thing that, um, that, that would be prohibited under the, under the statute. Uh, I think that Roger's tie would not be prohibited um, because it's not, you know, it's an ordinary piece of attire. It's not something that a reasonable observer would understand to be directed towards you know, a choice that is facing the voters um, you know, in this election. And so I think you know, the examples that are used, uh, you know, that actually were at issue in this case, I think illustrate that policy. So uh, the first was a please ID me button um, that, that um, was being worn and, and Minnesota said, no, you can't wear that. And uh, the reason was that um, voter ID had become a salient issue um, in the election uh, or in, in the politics uh, at the time in Minnesota. And so it was sort of, it was clear that that was related uh, to ballot issues. And I think, you know, the other thing about the please ID me button, it sort of, it raised other concerns too, um, you know, that are addressed by these state laws more generally. Uh, but also addressed by this political restriction, and that was that um, the button was was um, I think it was intended. There was there was literature to this effect. It was intended to create the impression that voter ID was required in Minnesota, even though it wasn't. And so that went directly to you know who should be voting in this election, um, you know how should people be behaving when they get to the polling place, um, and then of course the other item was the Tea Party shirt, and that. Again, didn't relate, you know, Democrat, Republican. It didn't, um, you know, expressly state um, that it was for or against a particular candidate. But of course, by that time, the Tea Party had become very closely associated um, with particular candidates in Minnesota. And, and so that, again, was something that a reasonable observer could understand to be related to the issues um, facing, facing voters at the ballot box. So Minnesota asserts several interests um, that support its restriction. 
Um, you know, the first is, is an interest in the sort of decorum of the of the polling place, and I realize that sounds a little bit um, amorphous at first. But you know, when you think about uh, what people are supposed to be doing at the polling place, you know, this is this um, really solemn civic responsibility that they're going in, they're casting their ballot in secret. We want that to be free of interference. We want it to be sort of calm. We want it to be a place where they can contemplate what they're doing. And so um, that is what that interest, I think, gets at. And you know, I, it's somewhat analogous to what you would think of in a courtroom, right? That um, you know, it's a it's a place where you know certain really important civic functions are supposed to happen. We don't want people there, um, you know, expressing their views one way or the other. We don't want to um, uh, risk the the idea that um, you know if you if you wear these things, you could be influencing what's going on in the proceedings. Uh, we want to protect the appearance of impartiality. Um, so just going to that, I think another thing that Minnesota is worried about is the idea that um, election judges, if they see people in these attires, you know, election judges are having to make decisions about, um, you know, who has satisfied the requirements to vote. You know, is your address right? Um, do you have whatever, um, you know, election card you need to have in order to vote? And if, if election judges could tell, um, just from the person standing in front of them, you know, what they were wearing, if election judges could tell what their political persuasions were, there's a, a concern that um, those judges would be perceived as making uh, decisions based on political party, political beliefs, and the state wants to avoid that. Um, just wants to protect the integrity of the elections, the appearance of integrity. Uh, you know, and then there are broader concerns about uh, voter intimidation. Of course, you know, when you think of one person wearing a T-shirt, that doesn't seem very intimidating. Um, but the, the state has to construct the statute um, uh, with the, in view of the possibility that um, you know, lots of people could show up wearing the same thing. Um, and, and so that is a concern of theirs. And of course, protecting voters from undue influence, um, you know, just uh, again, related to the intimidation concern. So those are the interests that the state um, has asserted here. And again, because the state um, has the leeway to impose reasonable restrictions, you know, it doesn't have to show that every single application of the statute um, is directly tied to one of those interests. Instead, as the court said in Burson versus Freeman, you know, there's a, as a, the states have broad interests. They have these sort of multiple um, interlocking interests in, um, in protecting the polling place. And so, you know, the, the state can essentially draw the line where it thinks it needs to draw the line in order to protect those interests. And it has some leeway to do that. Um, you know, and I think, it is. At, it may at first be unintuitive that um, uh, the state would have this kind of leeway in a case involving political speech. But when you look back at all of the non-public forum cases, they involve political speech. So, um, you know, some of them involve um, you know protesting outside of a military base, um, you know, uh, distributing campaign material outside of a post office. Um, you know, soliciting uh, funds as part of the um, government um, charitable uh, campaign uh, that prohibits some um, advocacy organizations uh, from doing that. So all of those cases did involve political speech. And in each one of them, the court said, uh, this is an area where the government has not uh, traditionally opened it up for, for everyone to speak. And so the government has more leeway here. So the state's view is that um, this case fits very securely uh, within that long tradition. And of course, the other requirement for the state is that um, the, the statute has to be viewpoint neutral. And this one is uh, on its face because it, it um, prohibits you know, all political attire that relates to election issues, regardless of which side um, that attire expresses a view on. Um, and of course, you know, anytime you have a restriction like this, where you have individual officials who have to um, make determinations in the field, um, you know, you, you, 
you want to be sure that there isn't room uh, for you know, um, arbitrary enforcement. And the state thinks that it's done that here because it has a, it has a clear standard. This is campaign materials. It's things that are so associated with campaign materials, with, with issues that are salient right then, that they effectively are uh, campaign materials. And so that combined with the reasonable observer standard, I think, uh, gives uh, comfort that the statute won't be uh, applied in an arbitrary manner. And of course, you know, if if somebody does, um, you know, experience that arbitrary enforcement, then they can, of course, bring an as-applied challenge at that point. Uh, so, for all those reasons, I think this, the state feels like um, uh, this law is very much within a long tradition of uh, giving leeway to states, especially in an area where what the state is trying to do at bottom is protect the fundamental right to vote. So, thank you. Well, thank you very much, Ginger. Um, we're going to hear finally from our own uh, Trevor Burris. Um, Trevor is a research fellow in Cato's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, and he's the managing editor of the uh, Cato Supreme Court Review. Uh, his research interests include constitutional law, civil and criminal law, legal and political philosophy, and legal history. His academic work has appeared in several journals, ranging from the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy to the New York University Journal of Law and Liberty. His popular writings have appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Huffington Post, and elsewhere. Uh, he is a co-host of Free Thoughts, a weekly podcast that covers topics in libertarian theory, history, and philosophy. He's the editor of A Conspiracy Against Obamacare and Deep Commitments, the Past, Present, and Future of Religious Liberty. A graduate of the University of Colorado at Boulder, he earned his law degree at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. Please welcome Trevor Burris. Uh, well, thank you very much, Roger. Thank you to Wynn and to Ginger. I appreciate that was uh, good, very good, and somewhat convincing. But. Uh, I'm going to approach this from a little bit different angle. I also want to thank PLF, by the way. Uh, uh, another, what is this, 13? Todd would know. 13 case at the Supreme Court. Uh, <clears throat> truly remarkable organization that I feel like I've trained many lawyers who work there when they've been associates at Cato. And I sing the praises of PLF all the time and the point that Todd will put me on the website if I keep doing it. Um, <laughs> so an, an incredible organization. Uh, incidentally, in research for this talk, I looked up the oral arguments in Burson v. Freeman, uh, which was mentioned by Ginger, the main precedent which they're kind of going through here. And I found this tidbit from Harry Blackman, who was, was from Minnesota. Quote from the, this is from the oral argument. I must confess that when I came, I think he means to DC, we happened to live across the river in Virginia and that I was almost offended by the presence of people handing out literature within 25 feet of the polling place. One would be put in the jug in Minnesota if he did that. I assume jug there means prison, but I, but so, which so evidently can be true, which is interesting he said that. Now, this is a little different than cases that PLF tends to bring, less about arcane property law and just sort of straightforward First Amendment case, a straightforward pro prohibition on political speech, insignia, apparel, and polling places. Now, I must admit, as a principled non-voter who has never voted at a polling place. Um, I am uh, a little bit offended by the political apparel that is, is handed out at polling places in the form of the I Voted stickers, uh, which if you go up to the sixth floor of my office, you will find a bunch of them put onto my nameplate by colleagues who want to shame me for not voting. Uh, I'm offended by that, but I can put that aside. I digress. 
the arguments in this case have an interesting reverence for democracy, which I like democracy, but it's an interesting reverence to treating the polling place like, kind of like a church or, as Ginger said, like a courtroom. In one of the articles in the SCOTUS blog symposium, J. Gerald Herbert, who is the Senior Director for Voting Rights and Redistricting at the Campaign Legal Center, described what takes place when political apparel is banned. He, quote, we submit our votes and take our I voted stickers, hoping that our preferred candidates will be victorious, but willing in any event to accept the collective judgment of our fellow citizens, the very people with whom we just stood in line. It is through this orderly and undisturbed process that we begin to heal from the divisive rhetoric of the campaign. Now here, Again, according to, according to Mr. Uh, hey, hey Bear, actually, here are the horrors of allowing political apparel. As voters stand in line, they are confronted with raw political divisiveness. No physical violence occurs, but people spot the differences. One voter makes a snide remark to a similarly clad compatriot about voter wearing other, the other tribe's insignias. Nasty glances are exchanged and mistrust abounds. When it's time to mark their ballots, voters self-segregate. Conservatives see like-minded voters in the booths on one side of the room and join them. Liberals congregate on the other side. It's easy, after all, to tell who is who. As their voters mark their hands with their ballots, mark and hand in their ballots, they acknowledge their political peers in line with nods. The poll worker out, handing out the I voted sticker smiles a little more broadly at some voters than others. These people are not voting together as unified Americans. They are balkanized, acting as members of political tribes. Now, it's interesting that we were supposed to prescribe that when we're inside the polling place. I don't exactly have the same view on that. And it's also interesting that I would have described democracy in many cases as balkanizing us. And it is sort of like team sports when, and wearing your apparel can seem strange to other people who are fans of the other team, which is interesting why the Minnesota Vikings uh, example that Wynn brought up, that could, that could be considered political or, or possibly if there's a ballot initiative on for movie taxes or tax breaks for movie companies, then my Star Wars tie could possibly, I know it's not as good as the uh, tie Rogers wearing, my Star Wars tie might possibly be banned. It's all discretionary and it's all problematic. But let's even take such a ban and apply it to a sports stadium. Uh, sports stadium, of course, not public fora, but if the, if the city of, say, I don't know, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love and punching horses and throwing batteries, if they decided to ban sports apparel in a stadium to prevent fights from breaking out, would that have much better chance than this sort of conversation here? Now, I digress because as, as in this talk, we've had everything kind of laid out pretty well. And as I realized when I was writing the Cato brief or co-authoring the Cato brief in the case, this, this is a pretty straightforward case. Uh, it kind of goes on public forum analysis on the issues that have already been laid out. But there was one thing that kind of struck me as odd for areas that I work at when I was reviewing the case in the matters of what if I were to want the Supreme Court to decide something and give a little bit more uh, little bit more jurisprudence on some issues that could be broader than just a polling place decision, then I found this when I looked at the definition of the statute, that the Minnesota law says material designed to influence and impact voting is political or, or promoting a group with recognizable political views. And the Eighth Circuit said that even if apparel is not election related, it is not unreasonable to prohibit it in a polling place in order to ensure a neutral, influence-free polling place. Now those lines made my, peer, my ears perk up because the idea of creating an influence-free spaces as a compelling interest under the First Amendment is quite frankly bizarre to me. Influencing voters is not a constitutional virtue, is a constitutional virtue, not a harm. As we say in our brief, attempting to influence voters is the end of politics and the First Amendment is the means. But not many people seem to believe that anymore about influencing voters. 
We have people from both sides of the aisle calling out political communication of the other side as somehow nefarious. You hear people like Harry Reid, when he would run an ad, when he would call out the Koch brothers on the floor of the Senate every other week, complain that ads run against him to influence voters were somehow corrupting our democracy. I hear the words influencing voters used more in a pernicious fashion than I do in championing the actual aims of political speech. People call out the other side's grassroots as astroturf because only, apparently only justified political activism is that when no money is involved and people spontaneously get up from their chairs and walk down to the mall to protest some sort of political issue, but if money is involved to pamphlet or get people together or get them to the spot, then somehow you're doing something wrong. But of course, your side is not doing anything wrong. It's only when their side tries to influence voters that we have a problem. So we see in our increasingly in our political debates, we have the right this week, actually this week has been a good example of this, attacking students for going down to their legislator and trying to influence gun policy, something I applaud them for on a principle of democracy, even though I oppose their policy matters. And we see the left attacking the NRA as another pernicious version of influencing voters, when if the left actually believed in democracy, they realized that the NRA is one of the most effective democratic organizations for mobilizing and informing voters that has ever existed. So in, in the, we live in a world where those things that influence the other side, as I said, are pernicious, and those things that influence our side is honest reporting. And that's where the debate about campaign finance, fake news, and influencing voters could, we could have something come out of this case that could help that uh, those kind of decisions in campaign finance just go better in the future. So thinking about this case and the bumper stickers and political insignias, it actually made me think about the class in law school that I got that got me into campaign campaign finance. I, I was not I, even though I'm a First Amendment absolutist for my whole life, and I've always, and I've been a libertarian for my whole life essentially. I was not that interested in campaign finance. It seems not terribly interesting until you get into the nitty gritty. So in law school, I took a class called the Creation of Public Policy, taught by a, a long 16-year term serving Democrat in the Colorado House and Senate named Ken. It was a small 15-person seminar. I thought it was gonna be about creation of public policy and I wanted to get in the public policy world, but instead it was mostly about, actually entirely about campaign finance and Ken complaining about the fact that people spent money on, to influence voters on things that he disagreed with. And one night over drinks, because instantly during that time, Ken and I got along famously, and uh, I became an unofficial advisor to a Democrat, Democratic Senate campaign at the time that he was working on. So one night over drinks with members of the campaign staff, Ken told me that the problem with Democrats is that we're too rational, which is kind of like saying in a job interview that your biggest flaw is that you work too hard. Uh, <laughs> And he told me that, the, that Republicans use bumper sticker logic and were convinced by slogans and pablums like when guns are outlawed, only outlaws will have guns. Democrats, on the other hand, can't put their beliefs on bumper stickers because they're more complex and they require more space. His bumper stickers would be paragraphs that you couldn't read at a stop sign or, or in effect any voter. And of course, what struck me as odd about that is that Republicans have told me the exact same thing. And hearing Ken say that made me realize why he was so into stopping money in politics. Because he regarded the other side's arguments as so impossible, as so irrational, as so silly that he had, he had to explain them in some way for why anyone could possibly hold those beliefs. And that's why influencing voters toward those beliefs is bad. And why spending money to influence voters toward, toward those beliefs is bad. <clears throat> I often ask students when I lecture on campaign finance, I ask them why people disagree with them. Because if you're a committed 
political, if you're, if you're here at this event, if you're in DC, you probably have committed political beliefs. And you probably have wondered, why is it that people disagree with me? Why, do pe why don't people get it? And increasingly in our society, the answers to those questions are that people are duped. They're duped by Hollywood, universities, public schools, corporate media, Citizens United, you name it. And this expl to explain how people's views that way is to kind of insult them, but to not take seriously what is happens in a democracy when we're influencing voters. Let me tell you why people actually disagree with you. You're not nearly as convincing as you think you are, and there are really good arguments on the other side. That's why people actually disagree with you. So when we're talking about influencing voter and creating influence-free places for the poll for people to vote and to not be influenced by someone's political insignia, I think we need to try and ask the court to address that as a justification. Say, influencing voters is the point. And if someone in a polling place happens to look at your MIT shirt or even your MIT shirt and just say, wow, I should vote for Romney. That may be not the ideal voter, but that's the kind of stuff that you allow in a democracy based in free speech. And also interesting, and Justice Stevens said in dissent in, Bur in Burson, which he did, he dissented in, said at one time, <clears throat> bans on election day editorial endorsements were traditional in some states. But in a case called Mills v. Alabama, established as such bans are incompatible with the First Amendment. In Mills, we set aside a conviction of a newspaper editor who violated such a ban. In doing so, we declined to accept the state's analogy between the electoral process and the judicial process, and its claim that the state could, on election day, insulate voters from political sentiments and ideas much the same way as a jury is sequestered. And Ginger made an analogy to a courtroom, which I thought was interesting in light of that, court, of that quote. Now, also, I found it interesting that Justice Stevens vehemently dissented in Citizens United, which I often characterize as trying to insulate the American public from different types of information on account like it's a jury. So in the broader context, looking at these statutes are standing up, I would like the court, of course, I think that, that uh, Pacific Legal Foundation will win this case. I think it'll be fairly straightforward, but I would like the case to not only be a case that goes forward that is about polling places and non-public fora. If the court can make a statement that influencing voters is the point of democracy and that money spent on influencing voters and apparel worn to influence voters and ads run to influence voters is something we should be championing and not cascading, no matter which side does it, then that could help the broader First Amendment debate. Thank you very much. Thank you, Trevor. All right, uh, before we turn to uh, you in the audience for questions, let's have a little, a few minutes of exchange among our panelists here. Um, when would you like to comment on some of this gone before? Sure. Um, I just kind of wanted to re respond to a couple of points that um, Ginger made in her presentation. One about Burson versus Freeman. Um, Burson versus Freeman doesn't really, uh, doesn't really, the regulation in Burson versus Freeman isn't all that similar to the regulation here because in Burson versus Freeman, um, the court was mostly concerned with campaigning, active campaigning, and I think even on the broadest reading of the statute on Burson versus Freeman, it only dealt with campaign-related speech 
i.e. speech that endorsed one candidate or another. And in fact, Freeman um, herself was a campaign manager. Here, however, we have much more speech that's kind of engulfed beyond just the whole, whole uh, vote for Hillary or vote for Trump speech. We have things like AFL-CIO, Chamber of Commerce, um, uh, NAACP, Cato Institute, you name it. So I think that even, uh, you know, I think that this law is way broader than the law in Burson versus Freeman. And even if you were to apply a, a test like the reasonableness test, I don't think that you can get all that sort of, you can outlaw all those different sorts of speech under even the reasonableness test because what's the relationship between banning a shirt that said a Minnesota Vikings jersey or a shirt that said AFL-CIO and uh, an interest in, say, like influencing voters or anything of that sort. So I don't think Burson is very helpful, actually, to the other side. Um, the second is uh, trying to balance this right to the First Amendment, this right to free speech under the First Amendment with the right to vote um, under the 14th Amendment. And that was the issue in Burson, but it's really not the issue here. I mean, the ACLU filed a brief in support of our case, and they're uh, as big on the right to vote as anybody, because I think as we recognize and as the ACLU and the Cato Institute recognizes, um, there are plenty of Minnesota laws or even the federal statute dealing with voter intimidation. In fact, the Voting Rights Act, uh, Section 11B, expressly prohibits voter intimidation. So you don't really don't, this gets at something beyond that. Um, and the only evidence actually of disturbing the right to vote here was when the election workers in Minnesota stopped our client from voting uh, for hours because he was just wearing a shirt that said, don't tread on me with a party of a, with a, the logo of the Tea Party um, Patriots, the local Tea Party in Minnesota. The final point I like to make is about statutory construction. And I think it's really telling that um, the government has advanced a theory of, this, uh, of the statute that they've never advanced before. And I think that's a credit to you know, the, the lawyers, the brilliant lawyers like Ginger that they've brought on at the Supreme Court merit stage. <coughs> because previously, Dan, Ro uh, Dan Rogan, the attorney representing the state, if you, if you read his uh, briefs in the district court and the Court of Appeals, he said that Minnesota's goal was to create a uh, forum in which the only expression allowed would be voting. And now they're kind of taking that back and saying that they're, um, it only applies to speech that's very closely associated with a candidate, which I don't think really squares with the election day policy, which prohibits any group with a recognizable political view. And furthermore, it really highlights kind of the chilling effect of this broad Minnesota law, because if you go to the polls and you're wearing a shirt like uh, saying that says, say, the Cato Institute, you have to guess before you get there whether that's going to offend a, a poll worker who thinks that your shirt is promoting uh, some group with a recognizable political view. Does Cato have a recognizable political view? I think it's fair to say that some poll workers might say it does. So I think the chilling effect there is that um, you just won't wear that shirt to the polling place. And sure, any you can bring an as-applied challenge. Any plaintiff can bring an as-applied challenge. But the whole point of the facial overbreath doctrine is that is so that voters and other speakers won't be chilled um, by an overbroad law. 
Just to be clear, we do have political views, but they're nonpartisan. Exactly. <laughs> Ginger? Sure, thank you, just very quickly. Um, just on Burson, I think it is absolutely true that the Minnesota statute is broader than the statute at issue in Burson, and that the statute in Burson covered both active and passive speech, but it was uh, strictly campaign-related. The statute here is a little broader because it's, it's trying to get at um, material that not only is, again, as I said, explicitly campaign-related, but also is just obviously associated with a particular campaign. So, uh, for instance, you know, Make America Great Again is clearly campaign-related because that was the campaign slogan. Build That Wall is less clearly campaign-related or strictly campaign-related uh, because it wasn't the campaign slogan. But I think we'd all agree that it's, it's very closely associated with a particular candidate, and we would all know uh, who that's talking about. Um, the other point about Burson is that um, while the statute was narrower, the court decided it under strict scrutiny. And I think it's really um, revealing here that that was the case, that in, in the context in which the state has the highest burden of, of showing both a justification for its interests and also a, a narrow tailoring fit uh, with the restriction it's imposed, the court still upheld um, the statute. And I think Burson is taken as a given here. I think the sort of more absolutist view of, you know, influencing voters is, you know, absolutely a coherent and reasonable theory of the First Amendment. It is one that the court has not adopted in this area, at least with respect to the polling place. Um, I, I, I think uh, Burson would essentially have to be overruled uh, for, for that view to take hold, and that is not an issue in this case. So it's taken as given. Um, and the only other point is that um, with respect to the burdens imposed by the law, I think you know, that is one thing that um, uh, the court can consider as part of the reasonableness analysis. So here, um, when someone shows up and they, they are asked, uh, you know, they're told that their attire is prohibited, they're asked to cover it up, which in Minnesota in November means you always have a coat on, so you zip your coat, um, and then they can vote. If they, if they don't, then, um, then they're, they're permitted to vote, but, they, but, but you know, their name is taken down. Um, so, you know, I think what's interesting here is that, um, you know, Minnesota permits campaigning all the way up to essentially the sidewalk outside the polling place. And that's where Burson said we can stop uh, or the state can decide that it doesn't want campaigning at that point, the sidewalk in front of the polling place, inside the polling place. And so, you know, it's no holds barred, um, you know, during the campaign, everywhere else. And then once you get to that point where you're actually voting, that is where the state has more leeway to say, you know, now we've had the campaign, we're going to let everybody focus on, on the actual voting at hand. Trevor? Um, <clears throat> The, well, actually, the question I had, I had for Ginger was in the concerns of discretion for a poll worker who can see the political affiliation, they might do something. Is, is that, how is that different than the discretion for what is political and related to campaign? It seems like, so, on, if you, so we allow them to decide what's political, and there could be, as Wynn pointed out, a bias as that's applied. Um, but you were saying that when they're registering to voters, there could be bias if they know. Are, the, are those different to you, that, that kind of fear of discretion? I think they are a little different. I mean, I think because this law applies across the board, um, I think, you know, you assume that um, to the extent you have people whose attire isn't consistent, they're going to be, you know, from both sides of the aisle. And so the polling place, the election judges can apply that, um, you know, to the extent that you're worried about people who have, you know, some flaw in their address or something like that, I think you're a little bit more concerned 
concerned that um, you know the people who are in line only see that one person um, you know have that problem, and that person happens to be wearing a you know Republican Party T-shirt or whatever it is, Tea Party T-shirt. Um, you know, then then you have concerns that because of that, you know, n equals one example, um, you're a little bit worried about the perception. Um, you know, of course. Obviously, the discretion is a concern anytime you have a, a statute like this, and so you know the the state, um, you know, needs to take measures to to train its judges, make sure that um, they're not applying this arbitrarily. They think they've done that here, um, but you know, obviously, it is a concern that the court should look at. And also going back to Rogers, one of Rogers' opening examples, would an "I like Ike" button be prohibited? I think it would. We would not because that doesn't relate to any anything. Well, it's Republicans the, though, and that's part of the issue. Would could someone make that determination and say, well, this clearly represents a Republican candidate, and the can and the, this election is between a Republican and Democrat? But only those of us at a certain age would know <laughs> right. what that meant. <laughs> oh, I, uh, I think that's right. <laughs> that's right. Okay, Reagan. Okay, an old Reagan button. I mean, Reagan is more of a paradigm of modern Republicanism. So, how, how, is that related to a person going to vote? For the current election, yeah, I think that probably would be, and of course, the case would be stronger, right? So if, is there line, if does it hit about Ford? Is that the line? <laughs> Maybe Nixon. Is I think that? Reagan's probably the line. Okay. I think you're asking what a reasonable observer would understand, right? And again, this is this is like in any other context where you have restrictions on billboards, that kind of thing, um, where you have to have some government official who is making an objective determination. And of course, there are always going to be, you know, line drawing. There will be some hard cases. Obviously, at the margins, um, you know, and that's where the as applied challenges come in. But I think, you know, in the main, you can say, is this something that we know is salient in this election? And you know, of course, in in most elections recently, at least nationwide ones, you know, Reagan and his philosophies, you know, that that has been an issue that's very much been um, a part of the discussion. And so I think, you know, you could say that a reasonable observer would understand that. Well, Ginger, let me ask you a couple of questions that have been um, bothering me about this case. First of all. The rationale that I heard you state and that has been stated by others, supposedly, I mean, what cries out for answering is, what is the rationale behind this statute? The one we normally hear is voter intimidation. Well, what kind of, I mean, are we talking about snowflake voters here, to put it in the contemporary parlance of students in college? who are so easily intimidated by someone wearing a, um, a, a shirt that says, I'm with her. If I saw a shirt like that, I wouldn't be intimidated. I'm just the opposite, in fact. Or if I'm sure that those who uh, would see a hat that says, make America great again, and we're on the other side, would be far from intimidated to be infuriated. But what kind of a conception of the voter is it that we're working with here that, that would be intimidated by something like this. And my second question is, um, what do you do, because you have Republican and Democratic judges at elections, if they disagree about a given apparel? Uh, one wants it, one thinks it's no problem, the other thinks it's a problem. What do we do then? Put it to the vote of the five judges to see how it plays out? So taking the intimidation piece of this first, I think, you know, the state has, I think, s several interlocking interests here. And I don't think the intimidation piece of it is about uh, one voter being intimidated by one uh, T-shirt. It's, it's a, 
it's a broader concern that if you allow this, you could have people who, you know, band together essentially to say, you know, we're all going to wear I'm with her shirts, we're all going to wear this or that, and we're going to show up in force. And that is a concern that the state can have, not only because of intimidation, but um, a concern about, uh, you know, decorum, preventing fights, you know, preventing arguments. Um, you know, protecting the security of the polling place. You know, the more that people are self-identifying, you do have this concern um, that it would be a more volatile situation. And that's something that the state wants to prevent. And again, you know, in this non-public forum context, uh, you know, it can do that and it can paint with a, a broader brush um, than it would in, in, a, in a public forum. Um, you know, certainly in a public hospital, for instance, the state could say, you know, we're not going to allow anybody in. You know, we're certainly not going to allow gun control protesters in. We're not going to allow NRA protesters. Um, you know, we're just going to protect that. Um, we're going to protect the decorum of, of the place. So I think all of these interests sort of combine together to say, um, you know, it's just better to keep that attire out of the, the room in which you're doing the voting itself. Um, and on the question about disagreeing, I think, you know, I, I think Minnesota has a procedure for this. And as I sit here, I don't have command of it, so I don't want to say anything wrong uh, about that. But I think, you know, I, this has been applied for a very long time um, in Minnesota and other states that have similar restrictions. And they have not had a problem with this, I think, because it has been understood, at least in Minnesota, that you are, you know, 90% of what you see uh, is straight up campaign material, you know, and and then there's a there's a smaller universe of things that are slightly broader than that, um, you know the the you know build the wall T-shirt that I that I mentioned that kind of thing, and again those things are are fairly closely associated with the campaign itself, and so I don't think it's been a difficult thing in Minnesota for judges to apply, um, but I do think there is some some process that that um, you know would would address that, but. Well, the idea of there being altercations in a, at the voting booth by, in a state like Minnesota, <laughs> land of Lake Wobegon, <laughs> strikes me as a little strange. But anyway, let's go to your questions now. If we could have the microphones, please. Uh, please wait for the microphone to um, arrive and um, give, give us your name and any affiliation you may have and who your question is directed to. Let's go to this gentleman right down here, and then I'll go from side to side. The next one will be over here, and while one is answering, just raise your hand so I can see, we can get as many questions in as possible. Yes, sir. My name is David Sowelson, and I could have brought this lawsuit. So I want to thank Mr. Fa for, in effect, representing me. Eight years ago, I worked outside my polling place for a local candidate. I was wearing his T-shirt. I took a few minutes off to go into the polls to vote. The poll workers immediately demanded that I take off my T-shirt. I took off my T-shirt, and they immediately called the police, who hovered around me as bare-chested I voted. So much for the secrecy of the ballot. At that time, the ACLU was not particularly interested in bringing the case, so I didn't bring a lawsuit. But I wonder, I don't have any tattoos. Suppose I had some chest tattoos or some facial tattoos. Suppose it was an election in which something about Sharia law was on the ballot and a Muslim wearing a burqa wanted to vote, wearing her burqa. Could a law ostensibly to protect the right to vote actually result in denying some people the right to vote? 
Who wants to answer that? Well, I think that, I mean, there have been people who have not been able to vote. It took like six hours, I think, for your, the client, right, to vote? Yeah, we have all those examples from um, uh, Arkansas and the, the yeah. other ones I listed. And it's kind of, it, the covering is interesting. As I wondered, if, if you were not in Minnesota where everyone has a code, and if you're in Florida and they had a law like this, do they, do they give you... Do they have to give you something to cover up, like one of those restaurants that gives you a tie or a sport coat? Like, or do they just sit there and make you vote without a shirt on, which is ridiculous. Like, that, that's absolutely absurd. Yeah, and just if I may add a little bit to that, um, just with, with the whole, it's cold in Minnesota, you can cover up a T-shirt. Sure, you can cover up a T-shirt, but one, you know, why would you want to cover it up if it's you believe it violates your First Amendment rights? And two, sometimes you have logos on sweatshirts. Like, I don't have that many sweatshirts because, but most of them say Michigan because I was freezing in Michigan and I bought all of them at the University of Michigan. So if you had a shirt like that, that would, a sweatshirt like that, that could be construed as political. Um, you know, the, they would force you to take it off. And in your instance, they force you to take off your T-shirt. So in practice, you know, they, they say a lot about, the government says a lot about this being limited to the polling place. But if you look at it on the ground, how it, how, what its practical effect is, it really, if, if the voter has no other option, he or she might be prevented from voting because he, he, the person would have to go back. So. Uh, the burqa probably would be an as applied challenge that you would not have to religious freedom, not have to take off your burqa. Yeah, you certainly um, have other constitutional yes, rights. Yeah, other constitutional room. rights. But what about tattoos? Can they be made to cover up tattoos? Do you know? I don't know whether the Minnesota, the Minnesota law does not address that, and so. I, well, I mean, it, it, but, it seems you know, to facially say. I do think you know, one important point about this law is that if you are, are stopped because of your attire and you refuse to cover it up, the polling officials are required to allow you to vote. Um, and so, you, you know. And then the cops will come later. Or maybe, or the fine, or the summons. Maybe not. The so, yeah, summons, right. yeah. Maybe, maybe not. It's the summons, yeah. To quote Chief Justice Rehnquist on that tattoo case, but in another case, we shall take that case when it comes okay, to Okay, yes. <laughs> well, I got to go get a tattoo yes, then. Gentlemen, <laughs> My name is Mike Irochus, uh, no affiliation. What about body language? Say a particular candidate had a, a common body language that people like to imitate, and, and very, very common, like hands in the pockets or arms folded, which represented his, his philosophy about the government not to be involved in taking your money from your pockets or, or hands folded to represent something else. And people that followed this candidate would sort of imitate that body language. Would that be restricted from the polling booths to, for the, the voters to come into the polling booths imitating that language, that body language? Not by the terms of the not statute. A, yeah, not on the It's a or insignia, like, but it's an, it's an interesting hypothetical. If, if a statute was broader, uh, political communication or something like that, then, you know, maybe. Maybe but, it'll but, come up when the cases are. But, but I, I think it goes to a broader point about even under this reasonableness test, like, what can't the government ban? Because um, I think some of the... Um, examples articulated by Ginger earlier is that people can uh, band together wearing a t-shirt and that would intimidate, uh, purportedly intimidate voters, but people can band together wearing any sorts of t-shirts. I could, you know, make a plan with um, a bunch of my friends to go uh, to a polling place wearing red t-shirts, but that doesn't mean, one, that's prohibited by other, uh, other Minnesota statutes as well as a federal 
um, Voting Rights Act. But two, it's, you know, in that sense, I think this statute would be under-inclusive in that if the, the, the harm alleged is that people can band together by all wearing the same T-shirts, then you would have a ban on all T-shirts, not just political ones. Oh, just a second, we'll, we'll get you next, okay? He's got the microphone. Um, hello, my name is Alexander, and I'm a second year law student at the Antonin Scalia Law School. And I have a question specifically for Mr. Fa. You mentioned the, the reasonable test for non-public fora, and I will assume for the sake of my question that the polling place is a non-public forum. The Supreme Court previously has held in cases like um, International Society for Krishna Consciousness that um, a non-public form like an airport terminal can place restrictions based on things that are based on speech that has nothing to do with the core function of the non-public forum. Like in that case, for example, the Supreme Court upheld an airport terminal ban on money solicitation on the grounds, or partly on the grounds that money solicitation, that, that travelers in a hurry could be scammed out of their money, even though being scammed out of money has nothing to do with the core function of an airport. So why should the court strike the statute in this case as unreasonable when it has upheld as reasonable restrictions in non-public fora that, doesn't, that don't touch upon the core functions of the non-public forum. And I'm assuming also for this question that uh, the speech on a t-shirt would have to, um, that, that would touch upon the core function of a polling place as well. Thank you very much. So uh, to clarify, we, our primary argument is that this law is so broad that for, you don't even need to go to forum analysis, and that's exactly what the Supreme Court said and a precursor to the, to the case that you mentioned, uh, Jews for Jesus versus Board of Airport Commissioner, in which the um, uh, Board of Commissioners at LAX banned all First Amendment activities at the airport, and the court said, look, this is just kind of sort of a give me a, give me a break test. This bans so much speech, we don't really need to go into uh, forum analysis. Um, to, to answer your uh, reasonableness question more specifically, uh, I, I do think I would dispute a little bit. Um, earlier I said that, you know, this, uh, this law covers so much speech um, that has nothing to do with any of the interests asserted. You can't just, this isn't the rational basis test. This is the First Amendment. You can't just assert an interest and assert a re reasonable relationship and then um, the court will uphold it no matter what. Um, but the ACLU's amicus brief is actually provides a in very interesting answer to your question because they say that political expression, and I think it's, it's a common sense argument, that political expression is indeed a core function uh, when you go to vote. So pe when people go to vote, they, they are, even by voting, expressing themselves politically. So in that sense, um, I would dispute the premise that this isn't sort of a core function of the polling place. I think one of the reasons for the polling place is that you're not really using it, the forum for your own personal benefit. You're using it to benefit kind of um, uh, the, uh, the voting process and political expression is indeed kind of central to that voting process. And I, I just, I, we write in our brief that the complete ban on political expression as stunningly broad as this is, we, we admit that a narrowly tailored law that, that 
was actually about uh, active campaigning in, you know, in someone's face uh, or actively intimidating people. This is you could th- see this in, in Ginger's sort of formulation as prophylactic to possible harms, and I think that that this is just too broad. So an absolute ban on political expression deserves strict scrutiny, no matter what form it is. When a law is this stunningly broad. Thank you, sir. I apologize for saying you were choosing all men. Will you forgive me? Well, he just chooses the people who were raising their hands. I I, I know. (laughs) Okay, thank you. I'm Jan Hamilton from Aspen, Colorado. Um, I guess my first comment would be I'm, I'm very concerned about the content of the cases that are being chosen for oral argument when we have Columbine and the deaths of of all of our students, and we have, well, the current events in America, and we are discussing T-shirts and wedding cakes. Um, So as a grandmother, I'd like to just voice that, and if you want to throw in any um, information in the answer that you give me on how the cases are chosen, the reason I'm here is that I do have a case docketed at the U.S. Supreme Court, and it involved vote at the First Baptist Church in Aspen. Um, I'm a lesbian, and I was banned from the church. Therefore, that year, I could not vote because the polls were held at the church. Um, So if you would like to just reflect on anything of your wisdom that uh, would um, empower American grandmothers to stand for what we believe in as we leave this planet for our grandchildren and all future generations. Well, the reason we're addressing this case is because we address cases one case at a time, and those other cases have been addressed in separate forums. So that's the short answer to that. Question. Also, the, the, long, the court takes cases, not... Policy, so. Well, could we? Could I get some kind of answer about the church vote? And I would have to know more facts. That's a pretty fascinating case on its face. I would have to know more facts on that. So sure. Okay. We'll we'll talk later. Other questions over here? No. Okay. Are we out of questions? Ah, oh, there's a man right there. Settled everything. Yes, nothing left. Todd Gaziano right here. Hi, um, my name is Richard Feet, and I was a reporter for a while, but uh, here's my question. Is that uh, when I was in um, West Palm Beach, uh, and this deals with appropriate dress and the questions of uh, First Amendment. Um, Could you speak up a little bit? Yes, later? there was a trial. Uh, and I was uh, in the jury, and uh, the judge asked me, do I have any innate biases towards the defendant? And I said, yes, the way he is dressed. And I said, it shows disrespect for the jury. And so the judge and I really got a very heated argument on what would be considered appropriate uh, at that time. And so, you know, and we talked about public and private and et cetera. And I think we both came to the conclusion that it's really, you know, it's up to the individual to define that, which is, you know, how, how do you do this, right? I mean, that's the question of the individual bias of, of, you know, one for one person and not another. I mean, you can have the laws on the books, but again, it's implemented by people, you know, on the spot. You're talking about the bias of the election, potential bias of election judges, right? Correct. Yes. Anybody want to respond to that? Well, I, I think that the, a good general rule, uh, one of the few 
just hard and fast rules in First Amendment law, which is a bunch of balancing and form analysis, is that if you have time, place, and manner restrictions, which are, you know, you can have a parade, but only from 10 to 4, and you can't have it too loud. I mean, those are always been considered reasonable, but if they're objective, but if the if there's another quality that was like, and the sheriff gets to determine if what you have to say is important, it's per se unconstitutional. Like, even, even if that sheriff is... The, the, you know, the most open-minded, non-biased person on the planet, just even the putting that level of discretion into a government official makes it per se unconstitutional. And, and similar, I would, I would put a similar analysis on this, even with the constraints that, that, that Ginger's articulated. Well, speaking of election judges, I may be the only one on the panel who's actually been an election judge. Uh, my wife and I were in the city of Chicago when we were graduate students at the University <laughs> of Chicago. And um, we walked into the um, voting uh, um, booth the, uh, about 10 minutes before the um, polls opened. And the other three judges looked at us and said, are you real Republicans? <laughs> because, of course, uh, the way Mayor Daley, this was the old Mayor Daley, ran the elections in Chicago, uh, was this. There were precincts with five judges. And um, in one precinct, it would be three Republicans, two Democrats. The next one over would be two Republicans and three Democrats. But of course, the Republicans were nominal Republicans. And so how else are you going to control the election? You just have it uh, decided ahead of time. Anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> Todd Gaziano, who's yeah, Todd. Uh, at PLF. Yes, Todd Gaziano at Pacific Legal Foundation, so you know which position I have. But I did want to ask Ginger a question, and in doing so, <clears throat> thank her again. She spoke for Pacific Legal Foundation at our Supreme Court preview. So she's a friend of Pacific Legal Foundation generally, except when she's representing clients. And, <laughs> and, and, we all and have that really, problem, don't we? Of course, of course. Um, but I, because you're so kind also to speak here and elucidate the view of your clients, um, I'm going to try to ask you a genuine question about your current position because our position in the reply brief is that the actual statute on the books that we're challenging isn't susceptible to the narrowing interpretation that you've expressed today and in, in your, your client's brief and that the breadth of political that's covered is not susceptible to your interpretation that it's only political as it relates to the election. And so my, my genuine question, I hope anyway, is, is your attempt to narrow the statute, that, that attempted interpretation, consistent with counsel below who said that an AFL-CIO t-shirt and um, moveon.org and um, the um, Chamber of Commerce, right, right, Chamber of Congress. Those, those three in particular. Is your interpretation consistent with those positions below, or do you think do you are you essentially refuting the interpretation below? No, I think they're consistent. Um, I think um, the state feels that this is the construction that it has always applied um, in the statute. And so the word political, you know, is, is obviously broad on its face, but it takes some context from, you know, the surrounding statutory provisions, which talk about impacting voting um, and, and issues in the election. And so I think, you know, what counsel said below was that um, an AFL-CIO shirt 
you know, would be prohibited by the statute if there were a reason to think, uh, if there were a reason for the objective observer to think that is, an, that is a logo that in the context of this election is expressing a view on, on the issues that the voters are going to be uh, deciding. And so, you know, to some extent, this is context dependent. But again, I think we're talking about sort of a relatively narrow swath of, um, you know, salient issues in the election. And so Chamber of Commerce, you know, yes, could be if there were some issue that um, particularly related to the Chamber of Commerce that uh, reasonable observers would be aware of um, in the election. And so, you know, I think some of the stuff is interesting how the case was litigated. Uh, the parties sort of switched positions a little bit. I think the initial dispute below was about whether um, the Tea Party shirt would fall within the statute um, or whether the statute was more narrowly related to campaign material. And so a point that the state was making was, uh, no, the statute isn't limited just to campaign material. It also includes these things that are very clearly associated with campaigns. And so, um, you know, you did have this sort of, um, you know, they were making that argument that it was slightly broader uh, below. And so, you know, now as the case has come to the Supreme Court, of course, you know, I think that's, it, it's, um, the parties agree that these things are covered by the statute, but then the question is whether that's too broad. Um, and, and so, you know, below, I think counsel is trying to make the point that, you know, you could include these things that don't strictly relate to the campaign, that don't say Democrat or Republican, um, but still for a reason specific to that election are, are salient and, and are associated with the issues. I, I used to... Uh, Doesn't that just go to the practical problem here that this law requires judgments that are so subjective that... Uh, the question is, is it judicially administrable uh, since these are election judges? Uh, it seems to me that you're just going to get arbitrary and capricious judgments all over the place, and it raises the question, do we want to give that much power? And don't forget, this is what, criminal sanctions, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Do we want Possibly, to give... Yeah. It's technically not a crime in Minnesota, but it's a petty misdemeanor, so I think it's like getting a ticket. It's what? It has possible criminal penalties. Possible it's a, criminal. It's not classified as a... Yeah. It, well, really? Yeah, but... No, well, that, that is enough to... That's what I'm told. For, 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 for a person okay. to, to, <laughs> to gather the mind. And so uh, it seems to me that just the, the very... The venture itself is fraught with peril. I think that's an absolutely valid concern. I mean, I think, you know, in, this, in the non-public forum arena, the... Government can impose, you know, content-based restrictions um, having to do with preserving the purpose of the forum, and so that, by definition, means that a government official will be making a determination about whether, you know, this content is in or out. Essentially, does this threaten the forum or not? Um, and so, you know, you see this not only in this context, but um, you know, in a series of cases about um, uh, permissible signs on public transportation. You know, most uh, public subway systems have have rules about what signs can can be, you know, who can buy ads or what the ads can say um, in order to preserve security and that kind of thing on the trains. And so, of course, those officials are having to make these kinds of calls. Um, you know, a lot of those statutes actually bar, you know, religious ads, political ads um, for some of these same reasons. And so, and the court, actually, the Supreme Court has upheld that. But, you know, in that context, you are having a government official making this call. And, you know, there will be hard cases at the margins in any of these contexts, I think. You know, I think we think here that, um, you know, in the vast... Um, you know, the, the 
core of, of these applications are not going to be hard because we're talking about you know, the actual campaign material or issues that are so closely related that a reasonable observer uh, would understand them as such. And I think there's that, the reasonable observer standard, I think, becomes really important there in, in allaying this concern. Um, you know, so we're not talking about you know, obscure issues that somebody who's been following obsessively every single thing uh, that a candidate says uh, would understand to be associated with that candidate. We're talking about you know, things that all of us you know, reasonably would understand to be associated. Yes, well, reasonable observer reminds me of Dr. Johnson's observation <laughs> that the love of reason is among the faintest of men's passions. <laughs> I used to run a T-shirt business with my current colleague, Aaron Powell here at Cato, about 15 years ago, called Idiot Shirts. And it was just pictures of people's faces with idiot under them. Um, we had an FDR shirt with idiot under it. How does, how does that one fit into your test? Is he relevant enough to make it political? I didn't. <laughs> I the latest nationwide election. Not, I mean, not. he's pretty pretty relevant. He's as relevant as Reagan, I would say. If I could Reasonable just, observer. <laughs> you are the particularly educated observer. All right, all right. If I could just re, uh, uh, respond to the reasonable observer test um, uh, just once more. I, I think it's true what Ginger says about the uh, buses who that refuse to run political ads and things like that. But I think that just really highlights the chilling effect of this particular statute because you don't have, you're not having an organization or a group that's trying to get an ad on the bus. You're, you're having someone who, uh, you know, is voting and might be uh, expressing himself with a Tea Party shirt or he might just have a Tea Party shirt on and he's told that he can't, um, well, well, the election, he's told that he could be prosecuted for going to, um, vote with maybe the only thing he has on that day. So I think that really produces a chilling effect, not just uh, chilling free expression, but also chilling in some ways the right to vote. Uh, this gentleman right here. Uh, my name is Ron DeSeo-Neal from Upperville, Could you put the microphone close? Yeah, uh, Ron DeSeo-Neal from Upperville, Virginia. Is that better? Uh, talk, can you talk into it? <laughs> All right. Um, there we go. Does the Minnesota law specifically address clothing with writing or an image on it? Because it seems to me that much the people wear expresses a political attitude. That somebody in a suit and a tie is expressing attitudes quite different normally from somebody in jeans and a tie-dye shirt. And could, by extension, an official say that you are um, expressing a political attitude because of the way you're dressed? Yeah, I don't think this this statute would be could be interpreted that way. Um, uh, this is uh, you know political attire that expresses a view, not sort of implicitly, but that anyone would understand as expressing a more direct view um, about well, that, the election. That brings up the question of um, like the, the, the gentleman over there, because political apparel is what it says, right? So, right. so right. if there was not a motion, but a. a it's like Neville Chamberlain's hat, right? Like right. that was so associated with him that you wore it to vote. It would have to be a pretty special, I would think. Uh, yeah. I know plenty of people who wear suits every day who vote Republican. Yeah, of course. Plenty of yeah. people who wear suits who vote Democrat. So, right. yeah. Any other questions? All right. Uh, we are going to adjourn and go upstairs and have lunch. But before we do, 
please have a, let's have a round of applause for our speakers.